Open the Word of God with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's look at the theme verse that we've used for this series of messages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For any listening or viewing later in another venue, we have had open to us Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, and John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, and Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, passages that describe the efforts of the Lord Jesus Christ, Andrew, Philip, Aquila, Priscilla, and the church of the Thessalonians to spread the truth of the gospel. And that is our theme for today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. Many verses could have been used for this series of messages. We chose this one. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Established truth was given by the apostles, even to the church of the Thessalonians, and yet the apostle Paul did not let them rest on what they had heard, but continued to exhort them that they would abound in it yet more and more. We want to please God. That's why we're here. We want to please the God who created us and the God who has redeemed us. And in order to please Him, we need to have heard the message of the apostles of all that Jesus commanded them. And so we have. It's written to us in the New Testament epistles. And it tells us how we ought to walk. So this tells us how to live our lives and how to please God. And we want to abound in it and do it more and more. We had our church history celebration on June 7th of this year, which marked 35 years that this church has been here in Greenville. And we celebrated all the ways that the Lord has led us over those years to show us the truth that we hold today. And we're thankful, very thankful. We look at the population of earth in uh, the mid-7 billion And we realize that so many of them have no understanding or knowledge of the truth. They do not know the true God. We think of Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Catholics. And pretty soon we're in a pretty small minority for the truth that the Lord has shown us and we're thankful. And we want to do everything according to the due order. We want to dot our I's and cross our T's theologically and soteriologically and eschatologically in all the spheres of Bible learning. But... There are certain things that we want more as we go into the future and not to look backward and be content with where the Lord's brought us. One of the verses that we have enjoyed in this series of messages is Philippians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. When Paul said that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, he is not talking about his Jewish rabbinical learning. He is not talking about his sins. He is talking about his accomplishments as a Christian. Forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to finish the race. You know, we've compared it on a number of occasions to 
a mile race or a 1,500 meters as the European nations require us to call it. A mile race has four laps to it around a quarter mile track. And your position at the end of three laps is quite irrelevant because it's how you finish the race. How do you know in first place after three laps that the ten guys behind you have not been drafting off of you for three laps and are about to pass you and leave you 11th? Now that just stinks. Um, And I've seen it happen before. Sometimes the crowd is so loud you can't hear those that are coming up behind you. But the Apostle compared the Christian life to a long-distance race. And we want to be temperate in our lives and do the things that are necessary to achieve an incorruptible crown like they apply themselves so diligently to obtain a corruptible one. We want to finish our race as well. So, the Lord has led us to these points of doctrine and practice that we want to emphasize going forward that are of a different sort than what we have called our ancient landmarks that the Lord has taught us. The ten that we have covered so far are being a Christ-centered church. The Apostle Paul determined to dumb down the message to one primary theme. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. First Corinthians 2, 1-5. through The Apostle Paul, with his learning, having sat at the feet of Gamaliel, could have entertained audiences with all sorts of human learning and even scriptural learning. But he wanted to emphasize the Lord Jesus Christ, and so do we. The second trait of higher ground that we want to reach in worshiping the Lord is more emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Baptists are typically reticent or reluctant to emphasize the Holy Spirit because they don't want to come off as charismatics or Pentecostals. We want to emphasize the Holy Spirit as much as the New Testament does. And without Him, we can do nothing. And without Him, we know nothing. And without Him, God and the Lord Jesus Christ cannot dwell with us, among us, or in us. Jesus said, It is expedient for you that I go away. Because I will not leave you comfortless, I will send a comforter to you. It's the Holy Spirit. The third trait was a greater emphasis on prayer. That we would be always a praying church. Because prayer is the most powerful thing you can do for your soul, your nation, your family, your church, or any other project or desire in your life is to bring it to the Lord in prayer. We want to be spiritually minded. And we want to focus on that. You know, before services, after services, whenever we meet each other, and in thinking through the week, we want to think on spiritual themes rather than carnal and natural themes. So we wanted to be a spiritually minded church. We have been. We have been all these things. But, like the Apostle told the Thessalonians, I would that you would abound in them more and more. So we want to abound in them more and more. Thus the series. We don't need some great alteration. It doesn't need a revival. We need some modifications and some minor adjustments. The fifth trait that we want to have is to be eternally or heavenly in perspective. We want to think beyond this life toward heaven. Because the more we get horizontal, the less we get vertical, and the more trouble we get into, and we feed the wrong man, and we get distracted and led astray from how we ought to be living. The people in the New Testament, I mean, they were looking forward to the coming of the Lord. And the way the prophecies were given, they thought that it could happen rather quickly. 
the Thessalonians themselves were convinced that it was imminent. And we want to be with such a perspective. The sixth trait was to have a relationship emphasis in our church over just mere religion or truth. We want to know and walk with God. We want to live for Him. We want to delight in Him. We want to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ in a relationship. Jesus told the church at Laodicea that they needed to invite Him in because He was knocking at their door. This was not for salvation. It was for fellowship. And a church can get so caught up in the theology, can get so caught up in doing things right, can get so caught up in the seven proofs and five phases, can get so caught up that we're neither Calvinists nor Arminians, and forget the Christ of the Gospel. And so that church had done so, and they thought that they were rich and, and so forth, and Jesus said, you are naked and wretched and pitiful and poor and blind because you don't have a relationship with me. I stand at the door and knock. And so that was uh, number six. We want to emphasize that relationship. We have. We're thankful that Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 about Him standing at the door and knocking is our verse. It doesn't belong to the Arminians. They don't understand it. They don't know how to use it. And they have led so many souls astray, having abused it over the past couple of centuries, that it's ridiculous. It's our verse. Then, we want to emphasize personal holiness. Not just holiness here in our assemblies, but personal holiness. Personal devotions with the Lord. Not just family devotions. Not just our church assemblies, but personal devotions was number eight. Then our spiritual warfare. We cannot forget that we are in a war with unseen enemies. And they are the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places of the devil's realm. It's a very real enemy with very real consequences if we don't resist him. If we resist him, he will flee from us. And of course, we spent some time on that like we have each of these points. And last Lord's Day was the fruit of the Spirit. If number two was the theology of the Spirit and the person of the Spirit and the emphasis of the Spirit, number ten was that we would bear His fruit. Those are the ten traits that we've had so far. Today's is soul winning. Now turning your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11. Let's get excited in the Word of the Lord as to what the Bible teaches. I hope that we all will humble ourselves before it and let it tell us how we can walk and please God more and more. We need the Spirit's fruit, which was taught last Lord's Day. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, Meekness, temperance, truth, righteousness, virtue, knowledge, temperance, godliness, patience, brotherly kindness, charity. We need that fruit, but there's more fruit that we need. And that's a fruit in helping others. The fruit, what we give to them, and the fruit that we reap them for the Lord's sake. Not unto eternal life, but unto conversion and their knowledge of that eternal life. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls 
is wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wise. My righteous brothers and my righteous sisters, in the sense of this verse, you need to be a tree. A tree where others can come up and pick a piece of fruit from you. And that fruit is life. You're a tree of life to them. You show them eternal life. You know, that's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that he had the privilege of doing. That God saved us according to His eternal purpose and grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but now hath appeared in the last part of the world and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. And we get to do that to others. And practical life, and the abundant life, and life in Christ, and life with Christ, we get to share with others. And and so you need to be a tree where others can walk up and pick fruit from you. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. We cannot be complacent. We cannot be content. We cannot be selfish just to come in here and hear the truth, love the singing, embrace one another, thank God through Jesus Christ for saving our souls, and go our merry way to work the other 164 hours a week to make a buck without caring about other souls. Everyone we read about in the pages of Scripture that were walking with God and filled with the Spirit were interested in others. Our religion is very simple. There's only two commandments to it. On this hang all the law and the prophets, the love of God and the love of neighbor. And the love of neighbor should mean that we want to share with them the truth when we see in them the work of God to prepare them for that truth. And we need to do some exploration to find them in that condition. I want you never to forget the verse on this particular point. Proverbs 11.30, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wise. That's a wise man. He is a benefit to others. Let's make sure that we as a church, and by that I mean we as individuals, are of benefit to others. God's Word should affect our lives, and I've just read it to you. God expects all of us to be soul winners. We cannot deny the inspired duty that we've just read, nor should we deny the charitable logic that if we were blessed by God to have presented to us truth that caused our hearts to burn, we should want to cause others to burn. It's been our pleasure, Kathy, to burn you. For those of you that know Kathy, she gets pretty excited about the things of God. And it's an encouragement. I have believed for longer than I've been ordained, because I've witnessed it this long, or that long, that those who do the soul winning, those who do the testifying, those who do the evangelizing, often end up with a greater blessing than those evangelized. It is so good to have a compassionate interest in the souls of others that it revives your spirit and your first love and your love toward Christ as you share Him with others. It's just the way it works. Because you you have to reduce your thought processes back to the beginning of what you heard in the beginning. And when you share it with others, 
you buy back into it again and, and you review it and you renew it in your heart and mind. And then you've got to have a better knowledge of subjects to be able to answer them and you see them responding. You've got to be able to answer their questions. It's win-win is what I'm trying to say. Right. It's just win. It's wonderful. And so it says, He that winneth souls is wise. Other Proverbs tell us the same. And without causing you to forget this one, let's look at a few more. How about chapter 10, verse 11? The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. You know, this isn't a tree of life, but is your mouth a well? Do people satisfy thirsty souls by being around your well that's just underneath your nose? You know, today it can involve your fingers. And for some of you that have joined the 21st century, it involves your thumb. You can be a well of life. The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. That tells us we need to do this. Cousin Tim, we need to do this. It's good for us. Verse 21, same chapter. The lips of the righteous feed many. Here's a righteous man again. You know, this is not talking about our legal righteousness in Christ. This is not talking about our vital righteousness by the regeneration power of the Holy Spirit. This is talking about our practical righteousness that these men do something for others, and that is to share the truth and the wisdom of God's Word with them. And we want to do that more. Chapter 13 and verse 14. 13, 14, the law of the wise is a fountain of life. You know, when a wise man gives out laws from God's Word, it's a fountain of life. Chapter 15, verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Let's guard our speech so that the words that come out of our mouths are just what this says, a wholesome tongue, and then again, it is a tree of life. Look at chapter 18 and verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your tongue has the power of death and life in it. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. If you love using it for evil purposes, harmful, sarcastic, ridiculing, critical, negative purposes, you'll eat the fruit of it. Or it can benefit people by being a well and tree of life. Chapter 25 and verse 25. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Now there is a far country. It's a heavenly country. It's heaven above. And the news has been given to us in writing by the Son of God who visited us from that country. And we get to share that with others. As cold waters to a thirsty soul. All these verses kind of go together, don't they? Pick fruit, well of life, a spring of water, a fountain of water, good news for a thirsty soul. This is the benefit that we can have toward others. Let's not draw up the gangplank and let God shut the door or we shut the door on the ark so that there's only eight of us inside. Let's look for those opportunities. I mean nothing by this but an example. I'm thankful that during my five years at Michigan National Bank of Detroit, there were two baptized into the church that I was a member of during that period of time. Because it's too much pleasure to share the truth of God with other people that you work with. You just got to be on the lookout for them. 
that if they ever show you a crack in their armor or any interest in thinking about religious matters or any desire to know truth, you can shake their world up. And it's a pleasure to do it. You know, you can drop a few little bombs on them to think about. You can point things out to them they've never heard before. You can show them things from the Bible they've never heard before. Both were Roman Catholics. Now that's a real pleasure. You know, I usually had an NIV in my briefcase as often as I had a King James in hope that somebody at lunch would tell me they used the NIV so I could hand it to them and ask them, who killed Goliath in your Bible? And turn them to 2 Samuel 21.19 where they find out that in their NIV, Elhanan killed Goliath. Just as a way of opening up religious, spiritual, scriptural conversation. Christians should make people think when they're around them. And you don't have to be a minister to do that. When we went through our church history, there was a man from Bob Jones University who was no minister nor close to it that was of great benefit to us. He made us think. And for a period of time in his life, he made us think by redirecting us to the Scriptures and showing us things we hadn't heard before. Are you that way? You can be that way. This is what we're wanting to study today. Look at Proverbs 27, since you're so close, in verse 9. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. Through your olfactory senses, so doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Are you a sweet smell to everyone that knows you because you give them hearty counsel? You can be known that way in the workplace. You can be known that way in school. You can be known that way in your neighborhood or your family. That when anyone gets around you, when you open your mouth, there's hearty counsel for them. And they want to pick that fruit. They want to hear those words. They want to read that text or that tweet. Let's let our social media, for those of you that use it, Let your social media present a sober, challenging, exciting, passionate presentation of the Lord of glory and the truth of His gospel. You can do that. You can take something that's generally being used for evil, frivolous, and narcissistic purposes and use it for the glory of God. A righteous man should have the fruit or the effect or the results of being a tree of life. I want you to be that way. Right now, we're sitting and hearing from God's Word and looking at the verses that a righteous man has a particular trait about him, and that is he affects other souls to believe the truth. He brings them life. He brings them the abundant life. The God of heaven is challenging every one of you to be that in your sphere and circle of acquaintances. I want you to embrace it with me. You should want to share the glory and joy you felt by hearing the truth with others. When your heart burned within you. You know, when we have had things presented to us and our heart just burns. My wife can well remember 1977 in our first apartment and her husband finding John 5.25. And you've all heard this, but I just want to remind you. John 5.25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is... When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. 
Right there at that moment, from God's Word, the Holy Spirit showed me that regeneration is by the power of the voice of the Son of God. It is not by the power of the voice of a preacher. It's by the power of the voice of the Son of God. And two verses later it says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice, and shall come forth. They that have done evil unto the judgment of damnation, they that have done good unto the judgment of righteousness or life. And so there's two resurrections, a spiritual one and a physical one. The physical one, no one's going to cooperate with the voice of the Son of God. It is going to be a life-giving voice that brings them forth. You know, my heart burned within me. Well, anyone that got near me in the year, the immediate years that followed that event was going to have to hear about John 5.25. And then, you know, once the Lord shows you something like that, you find out in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And you say, hey, John wrote John, John wrote Revelation. Over there in John 5, he's got two resurrections. Revelation, he's got two resurrections. A spiritual one and a physical one of his of the bodies. And you're off and running. And so when someone ever brings up being born again, you take him to John 5 and point out that it's the voice of the Son of God, not the voice of a preacher about the Son of God. And you know, these things we know. But are you excited about them? To share them with others who've never heard anything, the depth of their knowledge of regeneration is John 3.3. Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the extent of their knowledge. They don't know any more about being born again. They don't know what it means. They don't know if the verse is a statement, a condition. They just abuse it. And we get to share. Christ-centered was first in our list. Because we want to delight in God above all things. But we also want to help others. Your life can be reduced to the two goals of loving God and loving others. That's a nice way to live because it is so simple. We don't want to enjoy God, His truth, His wisdom, and congregational joy here with ourselves. We want to share it with others. Now, I've shared an epitaph with you, and I've shared it for decades. I wish that you'd buy into it with me. Buy the truth and sell it not. Here's the best way you can live your life. He delighted in God above all others. He was a tree of life to all others. She delighted in God above all others. She was a tree of life to all others. That is a purpose for living. It's not to turn a buck. Many men have been destroyed with a desire to be rich. Their souls pierced through with many sorrows. But that's a purpose to live for. To delight in God above others. To delight in Him more than others. To understand and answer the question Jesus asked Peter after His resurrection. Lovest thou me more than these? We want to love Jesus Christ more than others love Him. Peter had declared that before the crucifixion. Jesus confronted him with it afterwards. Let's delight in Him above others and let's be a tree of life to all others. Your life and your legacy can be like Daniel chapter 12 describes. Daniel 12, 3. And they that be wise 
shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now this is truly fulfilled in the apostles. It's truly fulfilled in those that were ordained by the apostles and their descendants in the ministry. But you also can turn others to righteousness and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We first of all need to define the doctrine of soul winning so that we don't get confused. Our doctrine about souls is entirely different from most or all religions. God Jehovah, the first cause of all things, gives eternal life unconditionally to some. We believe that. We believe that based on seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Not a single one of those souls can be or ever will be lost eternally from spending heaven with God. All the operations of grace from eternity to eternity are by God's grace in Christ. God knows where He has one or many of His elect. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, when a prayer meeting took place beside a river in Philippi of Macedonia, Greece, the Apostle Paul went out there and preached. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended to the things that were being preached by Paul. One soul in that particular case. Or in Acts chapter 18, when Paul's in the city of Corinth, the Lord appears to him in a dream by night and says, Don't be afraid of anyone in this city. I have much people in this city. And that was the church of Corinth. The Lord knows where His people are. You know, sometimes their faith may be overthrown by false teaching. 2 Timothy 2.18 But we like the next verse. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Paul, the greatest evangelist or missionary there ever was, if you want to use that man-made term, only worked for the elect's sakes. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 so that we might remind ourselves of this fundamental principle and fact of evangelism. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. We don't want to get confused about our doctrine of salvation. We cannot add to the names in the book of life, nor can names be lost on our account. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul writing, Timothy, Therefore, I endure all things. His ministerial labors, which were extensive, he labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you mark in your Bible, you might want to circle the word also and the word with, draw a line between them, because it means that two things are being considered. And that is that there is a salvation in Jesus Christ with eternal glory, but there's also a gospel salvation that Paul was able to bring the elect. By the fact that they were elect, God had chosen them to eternal glory. By the fact that Paul labored so diligently to get to them, he was able to share with them a salvation along with eternal glory. By virtue of the also. It means you've got two things there, and the two things are not the elect in Timothy or the elect in Paul, but the two different salvations that are able to be brought. 
But notice that Paul's emphasis is on the elect, and so we're always looking for God's elect in our soul winning. There is no human effort. We're we're defining our doctrine of soul winning. There is no human effort or lack thereof that impacts the number of souls in heaven. Now see, that that just rips us away from most or all religions because they all are taught that heaven is populated through their giving or through their efforts. Now I've, I've never met one personally that lived like it. I've met many that said they believed that, but I've never met one personally that lived like it. Because if you really believed it, then you would wear what John the Baptist wore, you would have no money for a haircut, and you would eat what John the Baptist ate. And you would spend every waking minute until you collapsed from exhaustion saving souls from the lake of fire. Right. How in the world can they live comfortable lives and be content with a 40-hour-a-week administrative job in some church if souls are dropping into hell every moment? That university down the street in this city, Bob Jones University, with that multi-million dollar art exhibit of Roman Catholic pagan heretical art, why don't they sell it? Do you know how many names they could get written in the book of life? Because none of them believe what they say inside. And so they oppose themselves. Thank God we don't oppose ourselves any longer. We do not believe that there is a name in the book of life by the Apostle Paul's efforts or by Billy Graham's efforts. Every name in the book of life is there by the Lord Jesus Christ's efforts. They're there by by God the Father's efforts, but they're saved by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a difference between us and everyone else in the doctrine of salvation. Yet, that doesn't mean we don't believe in soul winning. We just don't believe in soul winning to get names in the book of life. What a burden they should be living under. But they don't do anything about it. They do so little about it, it's a joke. I remember being told way back when I was a young man, as I was first hearing about these doctrines, or the doctrine of grace, you know it would be better to suffer the shame of nakedness by spending no money for clothing than to let a soul fall into hell because you needed a new set of duds. No one thinks that way. So they have art museums and comfortable buildings and they raise more money to put in air conditioning. Who needs air conditioning? Who needs air conditioning to get cooled from 90 to 75 when there's souls that are dropping in at 26 million degrees? They think we're nuts? They're nuts. We put all the glory on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what? You know what kind of freedom that is? But we don't want to be so free that we don't want to run around and tell everyone that will open their ears to us for just a minute and share the glorious gospel of Christ with them. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from thinking that we're a Savior. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, 
shall many be made righteous. It is the doctrine of representation or the doctrine of imputation or the doctrine of Adam's legal headship, federal headship over the human race, the first Adam and the second Adam. No one needs to believe in the first Adam in order to be condemned by his transgression. That's why babies die. They don't know why babies die. Why are babies dying since they're under the age of accountability? What are they accountable for to die? What if someone has never heard of Adam? What if someone doesn't believe Adam? What if someone doesn't believe the first three chapters of the book of Genesis? Are they still going to die? Because they're connected by God's imputation to the first Adam. And we are connected by electing grace to the imputation of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we live and shall forever live by His singular obedience. So Paul tells us that all of his efforts were for the elect's sake. Now when Paul looked at an elect person, how did he view them? Did he view them as in the balance? Did he needed to be there for them? Or did he view them as being called according to God's purpose, Romans 8.28, foreknown, justified, called, and glorified, past tense. 8.29 and 30. Did he understand that who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Did he understand? Is that what he said about the elect? Did he say that there is nothing that can separate the elect from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Did he say all those things in Romans 8? Yet he labored. He endured all things for them. So they could hear this wonderful message. It was worth it to him. Do you know when he went into Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean Sea from his home church of Antioch in Syria, and he sat down in the back. And when they finished their reading of the Scriptures, they sent a little boy back to him and said, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Paul looked around. Any word of exhortation for the people? I think I do have something I'd like to say. And Paul came up and took over that service. Have you ever read Acts chapter 13? You know what it says at the end of it? And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the next day came almost the whole city. And the Jews moved with envy. And Paul and Barnabas looked at them and said, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. We're going to go with the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced. And we should rejoice. Practical salvation. First of all, the purpose of the Gospel is to locate and educate God's elect, their God and Savior. The purpose of the Gospel is to locate and educate God's elect to their God and Savior, their salvation. Practical salvation that comes in preaching the Gospel to the elect includes their knowledge of God and the knowledge of salvation, the knowledge of what God has done, will do, and where they will spend eternity. It includes the assurance of that eternal life. These things have we written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 It brings obedience. Cornelius did not know what to do to please God, so the angel told him, Send to Joppa for one called Simon. He shall tell thee what things thou oughtest to do. So the third benefit of practical salvation through preaching the gospel to God's elect is obedience. Then it is fellowship. These things have been written unto you that your fellowship might be with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 1 through 1-5. And these things write we unto you that your joy might be full. Amen. The benefits of preaching the Gospel to God's elect. 
It's the salvation from chastening in this world. It's the salvation from error and wasting your life. It's the salvation from the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, that He might deliver them through who fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. These are the benefits of preaching the gospel. Peace and rest and pleasure. Come unto me, all you that labored or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you'll find rest for your souls. And the prosperity and success of walking with God and delighting in Him and knowing His will and doing it. These benefits derive from preaching the gospel to God's elect. Bible soul winning shares the truth with those that have not heard before and those who have heard and who have departed out of the way of righteousness. We want to care for the woman, the woman of Sychar. You know, when Jesus in John chapter 4 went and sat down at Jacob's well and His disciples left to go get some food out of the city, and out comes the woman of Sychar to draw water, and He engages her in conversation which Jews and Samaritans did not do. Do you love the woman of Sychar? You had a chance to speak a word to someone. Do you ever say anything to them? What a... What an event that was in John 4. Then there's Zacchaeus up there in the tree, and Jesus says, I'll eat at your house today. That man was thrilled. He looked around. The crowd was ready to stone him. They're murmuring because he was a publican that was collecting taxes from them for Rome. And he says, "Uh, Lord, I give half my goods right now to feed the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said, salvation has come this day to this house. Was Zacchaeus chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began? Yes. Did a salvation come that day? Yes. Gospel, practical salvation, or what we call conversion, what the Bible calls conversion. You know, we want to care for those like Cornelius and Lydia and Apollos. We want to care for those like Peter. Paul had to withstand Peter to his face, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, because he was playing the hypocrite there at Antioch. And he needed to be corrected. We aren't bound by the Great Commission. Where do you want to go? Let's go to Mark. Let's go to Mark. Let's quickly remind ourselves about the Great Commission. Oh, we are strange, but at least we live consistently with our convictions from the Word of God. They don't. They want to harp and harp and harp. They want to write their mission statements for their churches all about the Great Commission. They can't find an epistle in the New Testament that even mentions it, alludes to it, implies it, assumes it. But it's their mission statement. Over and over. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, He appeared unto the eleven. How many? Who were they when we've got the definite article, the eleven? They were the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Afterward, He appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen Him after He was risen. And He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized... Church of Christ loves that verse. Baptists try to steer away from it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, 
and they shall recover. The Great Commission. Here's the Great Commission. Preach the gospel to every creature. But it was given to 11 very, very, very special men. When we look at the gifts in the New Testament, the first gift is always the apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastors and teachers. And it works itself all the way down to what charismatics and Pentecostals are able to fake, and that's the gift of tongues. The least gift ever given to a church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28-31. The apostles, it says the eleven. They were to go into the wall of the world and preach the gospel. It was given to the eleven apostles, no matter what scripture you check for it. It includes features that only they could fulfill. Waiting in Jerusalem. How many missionaries do you know started out their ministry by waiting in Jerusalem? Acts chapter 1 says to wait in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. It says that they would give, be given special miraculous power like is described here. That there was to be a geographical progression from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Again, they do not follow the commission mandate. And they would have a great variety of miracles. Point number three. It was fulfilled before 70 A.D. by 12 different references in the New Testament. The Great Commission was fulfilled before 70 A.D. Now, in Mark 16, if you'll swear off Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, you have two verses at the end of this chapter that tell us it was fulfilled. Look at verse 19. So then, so, do you understand these little words? This little adverb, so, in the manner that has just been described. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Amen. There's nothing more to be said. They went everywhere and preached just as Jesus described the Great Commission. This is one of the 12 places in the Bible that tell us it took place in the lifetimes of the apostles. Preacher, how could they travel that far, that fast? Well, have you ever read Acts chapter 8, where a deacon turned evangelist was able to baptize a eunuch down in an oasis, and when they came up out of the water, Philip just flat out disappeared and was found at a city called Azotus preaching. Now that's faster than any transportation you've ever heard of. They could easily get it done. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the truth. We want to be soul winners, Lord. We want to have the fruit of a tree of life in our lives. We want to win souls and be wise. We want to have a fountain of life in our mouths and on our fingertips. We do want to share the gospel with your elect, just like Paul wanted to share the gospel with the elect. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you. This is the city of Colossae. In Asia, minor, of the Roman Empire. 
which is come unto you, that is, the word of the truth of the gospel from verse 5, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. Colossians 1, 6, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. That's verse 6 of chapter 1. We can go to verse 23 of this same chapter. Colossians 1, 23. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What are we talking about? The gospel. Which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Why don't they ever use these verses? Why do they ignore these verses? The apostles were very special men with very special endowment from God and the Lord Jesus Christ to make this earth-shattering, earth-changing, turn-the-world-upside-down transformation in knowledge and light by the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. You remember some of these passages. When anyone takes you to Mark 16, just ask them to read the rest of the chapter. Now, some of them won't have the rest of the chapter because... The manuscript Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, two Catholic manuscripts, don't have them. But our King James Bibles do, and some of their Bibles will. Then come to Colossians chapter 1, get verse 6, get verse 23, and if you need to write down cross-references, those are two of, those I've given you three, of 12. Now, let's go back to Matthew 24, so that I can prove that it was all done before 70 A.D., the ignorance of two particular verses that I'm about to show you is uh, staggering. But, Lord, we would not know anything if it weren't for Your grace Amen. in granting us repentance, opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our hearts, opening our minds, and sending able men to teach us the truth. We would know nothing and less than nothing. All glory belongs to Thee, Heavenly Father. We are but little babes. You've hid these things from the wise and prudent. You've revealed them even to us as babes. We thank You for it. We shall not apologize for it, nor shall we talk with a milk-toast presentation of the truth because it wasn't by our own derivation, but by Your revelation. Matthew 24, verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. There's Calvinists. Jump on that verse and teach the perseverance of the saints. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. I wonder where Samson is. Hebrews 11 tells me he's in heaven. I wonder where Lot is. I wonder where Solomon is. Calvinists use this verse to teach the perseverance of the saints that if you don't persevere and grow in sanctification in your life, you're one of those false professors and you'll never make it to heaven. That is so convenient. Everyone's a false professor that doesn't match their description of a saved life. The end that is here in Matthew 24, 13 is the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, the end of the Jewish nation, which the Romans were going to bring on it in 70 AD, which is what the chapter is about, which is why it says in verses 32 through 35 that these things, verse 34, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. The end is going to happen on that generation. The abomination of desolation described here is explained by Luke in Luke 21, 
where there's no obscure language used, it's the Roman armies coming to encircle and encompass the city of Jerusalem. And when they would tear the temple down, when was the temple torn down? If you go to the first five verses of the chapter, it's all about looking at the temple. The, the disciples from the Sea of Galilee, of course, they were so poor, they're admiring the stones. And Jesus says, don't admire these stones. They're about to be torn down and there won't be two stones left attached to each other. That's the context. So what is the end? It's the end of the temple. It's the end of Jerusalem. It's the end of Israel as it was then known. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What does he have to endure? He has to endure the false prophets of verse 11, the iniquity of verse 12, the betrayal of verse 10, the affliction and persecution of verse 9. Who went through this? The apostles did. The same men that are in the chapter. But we want verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Do you know how many ministries are based on this logic? Matthew 24.14 tells us that the end can't come until the gospel of the kingdom is preached unto all nations. Therefore, since the gospel of the kingdom has not been preached unto all nations, you need to give a little bit more today so that we can buy another radio station sending unit in some wild place in New Zealand or the Brazil Amazon jungles so that we can get the gospel of the kingdom preached to all because Jesus can't come back yet because you haven't given enough yet. Over and over this is preached that way. This is 70 AD. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The end of Jerusalem and the worst tribulation the world has ever seen took place on that city when it was closed in by the Romans at the time of a feast when all those people were there that were not ordinarily there. There was no food. They ate each other and they killed each other because it was a devil-possessed generation of Jews. The gospel of the kingdom was preached and the end came. And the temple was torn down. And so all the verses in the New Testament match. Mark 16 says, So then they went and did it. Colossians 1 says, In all the world. Colossians 1.23 says, To every creature. To all nations right here. Then shall the end come. No souls are at risk anyway. Amen. I love preaching on the Great Commission. There's not a soul at risk. If there's a soul at risk, are you trying to tell me that the risk of that soul is dependent on you? Then why are you sitting here listening to me? You should be out there saving that soul. You don't really believe it either, or you wouldn't be sitting here. Right. Sell your clothes, sell your car, sell your toys, your trinkets, your jewelry, sell everything you've got, cut your hair off and sell it. Somebody might be able to make a rug from it. And go out there and save the lost if you think that you can give eternal life to someone, we thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that He gave eternal life to all that the Father gave Him. And Jesus said, I shall lose none of them. If Jesus said He shall lose none of them, what does that mean to you? Does it mean something sort of like He won't lose any of them? Does it mean sort of like everyone God wanted to save will be saved? God wanted to save will be saved? No souls are at risk to miss heaven. Jesus said He wouldn't lose one in John 6. 
He said he wouldn't lose one in John 10. He said he would save as many as the Father had given him in John 17. Paul said that not one of the elect can fail and that they're already glorified in a past tense use of that verb because it is so certain based on God's predestinating purpose Amen. in Romans chapter 8. And we could go on from there. The commission, the great commission is not emphasized, repeated, implied, or mentioned in any epistle of the New Testament. You know, if it's the most important, if it's why we're supposed to exist as a church, if it's the most important thing, do you think it might be mentioned once in all the epistles? If it's supposed to be the mandate of a church, do you think it might be mentioned once in every epistle? If it's as important as they say it is, do you think it probably ought to be mentioned once in every chapter of every epistle? Why is it ignored? Right. Why is it never repeated? Now, there are lots of commandments and duties and exhortations given in the epistles of Paul, but they are all about practical godliness and growing spiritually, not about getting out and adding names to the book of life. Never mentioned. Now, is that consistent with what we read? That it was already fulfilled? It certainly is. No church lives by the commission in reality anyway, for they can't keep its terms, especially Baptists. You know, Benny Hinn thinks he's keeping its terms, but he's never met a real snake. You know, if he wants to take up serpents, let me bring the serpent. Why does he only heal in coliseums rather than hospitals? No man lives by their view of the commission, for they live far too comfortably to give any credence to their doctrine that eternal souls hang in the balance. Why would you ever have a family if eternal souls hang in the balance? Every, the men that really loved souls in the Bible didn't get married and didn't have children. So what are you doing having a family? You are many in soul winners. You've got you to take up your whole life earning a living for them, keeping the house painted, and feeding them and getting them schooled when you should be out stopping the humanity falling into the lake of fire. Look at Matthew 10. I've got one more point. We'll leave this subject and we'll leave this sermon. Matthew chapter 10. Oh, they love Matthew 28. They love Mark 16. But you know, Jesus gave a few little more pieces of advice on how to go out and preach the gospel. Matthew chapter 10. You know, I've had to ask this question before because many of you probably don't know what it means. What does the word deputation mean? Deputation. That is, that is the money-begging efforts of missionaries before they ever go anywhere. Modern missionaries don't go anywhere until they've got enough churches to sign on their letterhead that they're going to give them 50, 100, 200, 1,000 a month until they get up to five, ten thousand 10,000 a month or whatever it's going to take for them to live in some foreign country. It's called deputation. They go around and beg money. It can take a year. It can take two years. It can take a long time. But they ain't going until they have all that support promised to them. Here's what Jesus said about deputation. Matthew 10, verse 7. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Don't look to be supported. Freely give the truth away. 
Verse 9, Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. Have you ever seen a missionary go to the foreign field? And how many suitcases they take with them? They usually have to have massive boxes shipped by freighter to get all their stuff over there. I'm just, just wanting to remind you as you read the verse. No script. That's a little shepherd's pouch for holding David's five stones, hoping that Goliath's four brothers would show up. Nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And so we have the Lord's instructions on how missionaries ought to go to the mission field. If, if you're going to do it the way Jesus said to do it. If you're going to buy into Matthew 28, then I'm going to help you buy into the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. If you buy into Matthew 16, verses 14 through 16, I'm going to help you buy into Mark. I mean, I, I meant Mark. Mark 16, verses 17 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. But brethren, if we're Bible Christians, you know, what we've just done is separate ourselves from a false idea of soul winning. It's by the obedience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, that everyone is made righteous. Right. Just like it is by the disobedience of one that babies die. Babies don't have to send themselves to die. They already send themselves in the first Adam. Thus they die, even though they haven't reached the man-made heretical idea of an age of accountability. We are separating ourselves from that. But everything I've given you so far stands solidly on God's Word. We should be soul winners. We should be a tree of life to others. Right. We want to delight in God above all others through His Word, and we want to be a tree of life to all others. What we've just had to do is undo the false notion that we're responsible for the eternal destiny of souls. We're responsible for the earthly pleasure, prosperity, assurance, fellowship, and joy of the souls of God's elect by His blessing. By His blessing to show them to us. By His blessing to give us the things to say. By His blessing to pick the right Scriptures for them. By His blessing to arrange our providential crossing in life like Aquila and Priscilla sitting in the synagogue and hearing Apollos get up and go off very eloquently, mighty in the Scriptures, fervent in spirit. He was an intense preacher of the Gospel, but he was wrong. So they made their way up afterwards and invited him to their house. And they sat him down over some sub-sandwiches from Firehouse and they explained to him the way of God more perfectly. Right. And when they unleashed that man the next time, did you read what he did the next time they unleashed him? Praise the Lord. Amen. That's soul winning. Do you know for the rest of their lives, Aquila and Priscilla could thank the Lord that they had been used in the life of one Apollos. And when you get to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, there's the Corinthians. Some are saying, I'm of, a Paul. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas or Peter, I'm of Christ. But there's a faction in that church at Corinth. I'm of Apollos. Because he was mighty in the Scriptures and was used mightily. I hope you appreciated the last verse that was read about him, Acts 18.28, that he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly that Jesus was Christ. He put all those gifts 
that God had given him to use to convince Jewish elect that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. But it depended on a husband and a wife team that knew enough about the Word of God to be able to convert him. And they did. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.